So we're beginning a new teaching series this morning, and it's called The Year of the Lord's Favour. And uh, we're going to spend the next couple of months looking at chapters four through to nine of Luke's Gospel. And Luke was a a Gentile, so a non-Jew. He was a doctor, and he was a fabulous historian. And uh, and right at the start of this series, I want to issue you with an invitation. And the invitation is to come and take a long, fresh look at Jesus. That's the invitation. Come and gaze. Come and wonder. Come and worship. Come and fall in love all over again with your Saviour as we do this. You see, the world looks for a hero. and We already have ours. His name is Jesus. And the more that you look upon him, the closer you draw to him, the more magnificent he appears. And that's our hope for this series. Now, much of the content and many of the stories in Luke's chapters 4 through to 9 may be familiar to you. And, uh, and so I'd encourage you, as you come, even though there might be a familiarity to it, come and be prepared to be amazed. Amazed at his love, at his grace, his compassion and his mercy. Prepare to be challenged. This is Jesus launching his kingdom, doing the acts of the kingdom, preaching the grace of the kingdom, loving people with the love of the kingdom. And we'll see that he is our model, he's our template, he's our teacher. And so as I've said, the theme of the series is the year of the Lord's favour. And as we will see today in this first instalment, Jesus describes the year of the Lord's favour as having arrived. And we still live in that. It wasn't a calendar year. It was an era of the Lord's favour. And so we're going to explore what Jesus meant by that, how he acted, what he did, and therefore what we can learn and the implications for us for that. So in today's passage, we see him with that public launch of his ministry. And we see right at the outset his priorities and his emphasis. And Luke places this account right at the start so that the readers and the hearers are clear on what Jesus is doing. This is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. So I'm going to read you uh, Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through to 30. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue. On the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he closed the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, He went on his way. I think we should pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have as your people being able to gather around your word, study and read and learn and be inspired to go and fulfill the calling that you've called us to. And so we pray as we look at this passage, this launch of your ministry, would you speak into our hearts and stir us for action for you. Amen. So Jesus has been uh, going around in verses 14 and 15 uh, in the power of the Spirit, doing loads of stuff. He's been uh, teaching in the synagogues, as particularly mentioned, and other things as well. And uh, is being generally praised by the people he encounters. And so in verse 16, he comes to his hometown and he comes to worship. I love the phrase, as was his custom, as was his habit, he went to worship. And that Sabbath service would have consisted of a number of different elements, a reading from the law, from the Psalms. There would have been some prayers, a priestly blessing, and there'd have been a reading from the prophets. And then there would have been an interpretation of that reading, usually from a a visiting or traveling teacher. And that's the bit where Jesus got involved. And I love the way Luke structures this kind of bit of the narrative. So in verse 17 through to 20, and in the middle, you've got this passage of scripture he reads. But we read that he goes into the synagogue. He stands up. The scroll of the prophet is given to him and he unrolls the scroll. Then he reads from it and then he rolls back up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant. He sits down and the synagogue are watching him. And what what that does is it focuses our attention on the words of scripture right in the heart of that little few verses. And Jesus declares that today that scripture is fulfilled. And that should be exciting news that this scripture, I mean, it's an ancient prophecy and today it's fulfilled. And uh, we're going to look at that prophecy in a bit more detail later. But first of all, I wanted to look at how the people responded, because I think that's really important. And the reason is, in verse 28, the people were filled with rage. 
So <laughs> Jesus reads the scripture, he then explains it, and then they try and kill him. So, I mean, I'm not anticipating that that was going to happen this morning, but you're all safely in your home, so I think I'm okay. Um, but it's a crazy response. So why is that? I think there's a few elements to it. First of all, it's because Jesus claimed to be the anointed one. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. And by claiming to do that, he brings together two themes which Luke has been talking about for four chapters. The first is the activity of the Holy Spirit. Read through the early chapters of Luke and see how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And given that he hasn't been mentioned for the previous 400 years, it's kind of shocking. He's linked to John the Baptist. He's linked to Mary at the conception of Jesus. He's linked to Elizabeth. He's linked to Zechariah and to Simeon, the work of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit comes on him in his baptism. Then he's full of the Holy Spirit and led into the wilderness to be tempted. And then he returns, as we read just now, in the power of the Spirit. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and he declares publicly that that is the case. So that's the first thing where he's claiming to be the anointed one. The second thing is by doing that, he's claiming to be the son of God. And again, Luke's been talking about this for chapters and chapters. In chapter one, it says, you'll call him Jesus, the son of the most high. The angels talk about this incredible baby that is born. At Jesus' baptism in chapter three, the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And it can't be much clearer than that. And then Luke launches into this genealogy in the middle of uh, Luke chapter 3. And it says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, etc., 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 etc. Verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. (laughs) It's there. He's the son of God. And even, even Satan acknowledges it. In the temptations in chapter four, he says, if you are the son of God, then why don't you do this? And these two things, the activity of the Holy Spirit and Jesus being the son of God, kind of come together in this claim that Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus is setting himself up as the anointed one. It was kings who got anointed. The baptism for Jesus was his coronation, if you like, where the Holy Spirit comes on him. What he's doing here is the inauguration address, as we'll see in Congress in the US later this week. The launch of the next reign. The people of Israel were awaiting the anointed one who would be Messiah, the saviour, the king of the line of David, the long expected one. And Jesus declares the Holy Spirit's on me, not just a one-off anointing, but he will remain on me. He's claiming to be the king. And their response is, isn't this Joseph's son? Well, no, no, no. This is the son of God. And so as the gathering in Jesus' hometown synagogue start to listen to him, really what they want is for him to come and perform a few tricks, like he did down the road at Capernaum, the nearby main time. It's kind of, hooray, Jesus is back in town. Joseph's son is here. He's come to perform. No, he's not going to do that. 
This isn't simply the son of Joseph. It's the son of God. The king of kings is in town. And the crowd didn't like it. He won't be accepted in his hometown. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So that's the first reason why they might be enraged is because he claimed to be the anointed one. The second thing is that he quotes from Isaiah 61, but he changes the emphasis. See, Isaiah 61 was a popular passage. It was one of their faves, you know, on the top 10 list. Isaiah 61 would be up there. And what they, the, if you go back to Isaiah 61, the next verse, Jesus says, the, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, and the next bit is, and the day of vengeance of our God. And he doesn't say that. They're not happy about that. Because the Isaiah prophecy goes on to talk about how judgment will fall on the Gentiles. They will be the ones who will end up being the shepherds of the flock. Who will be the servants. The wealth of the nations is going to come to Israel. The next bit is about judgment on the Gentiles. And Jesus, what Jesus isn't saying is that judgment won't come. It will come and it will be terrifying because it will deal with everyone who's rejected the anointing one. But here, Jesus was not inaugurating the day of judgment. He was inaugurating the year of favour. The day of judgment will come, but today is the year of favour. And this was hugely disappointing to the audience. They're waiting for the next line because that gave them hope that the Gentiles who currently oppressed them, the Romans who were in charge of their nations, would be overthrown. They would be defeated and they would be sent packing. But today Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying it's the year of the favour of the Lord. The time to respond to this grace of God is here now. A time of grace. And That would be bad enough, but Jesus actually goes even further. It's not just that there's no delay on the judgment for the Gentiles, but it's the fact that there is going to be grace for the Gentiles as well. And he gives these two examples of Elijah and Elisha. So um, in verse 25 and 26, it says, There were in, uh, in Israel many widows in the time of Elijah. But Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to one in Zarephath, in Sidon. And the outline of that story is that there was this huge famine which God brought on the nation of Israel. And Elijah was fed by ravens. Then he was sent to Zarephath, to this widow, and asked, uh, he asked her for a drink and some bread. And she said, well, I haven't got much left. This is the last I've got. And you say, give it to me anyway. So she did. Um, And then the flour and the oil never ran out. Her son died, which was sad, but then he was raised again, which was good. Um, So there was a lot kind of happened. But the blessing was for this widow who was not in Israel. She was a foreigner. And Jesus then gives a second example, which is the example of Elisha. He said there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, but none of them were cleansed. In fact, it was only the commander of an oppressing army, Naaman the Syrian, who was healed. And again, the story there is the Syrians were, had been oppressing, they'd kind of attacked Israel, carried off people. Um, one of the people they'd carried off was a Jewish girl who became a servant in the house of Naaman. And when she heard that her master had leprosy, she recommended that he went uh, back to Israel for healing. 
And he ended up at the door of Elisha's house and Elisha didn't even meet him. He said, just go and have a wash in the river. That made him indignant, but he did it anyway and got healed. Many lepers in Israel, the only one who got healed was Naaman, who was a foreigner. And so Jesus, by citing these examples, is creating a bit of trouble for himself. Whereas declaring himself as the anointed king, the Messiah, that would take people's minds back to the great golden era of the nation under David and Solomon. But mention of Elijah and Elisha would remind people of one of the nation's lowest points in their history, a time when God was sidelined and rejected when King Ahab and his wife Jezebel led the nation into gross and horrific rebellion and sin. And Jesus says to the synagogue crowd, this time is like that time, the time of Elijah and Elisha. The same weak and evil leadership, the same rejection of God, facing the same judgment, and you can expect me to follow in the footsteps of Elijah and Elisha bringing grace and hope to the Gentiles. And so what is happening in this manifesto launch is that Jesus is declaring himself to be the anointed Messiah King and a prophet who will speak God's words to a godless society, a society in which God's people reject him and so he extends grace to others. And so maybe that explains why, in verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they planned to kill him, they take him up, they drive him out of the city, up the hill, where they plan to throw him off in order to kill him. Now there will come a day in 19 chapters time when Jesus will be taken out of the city, taken up a hill, and there he will be killed. He will be hung on a cross. But now was not the time for that. Now was the year of favour. Now was the time when the kingdom would be launched out. And so Jesus was able to walk back through the crowd. His time had not yet come. And we think he never went back to Nazareth. They rejected him. And so he left. So that's the kind of wraparound story, if you like. But what's the message? What's the kingdom manifesto that Jesus launches here? And what does it mean for us? I'm going to look at this pretty briefly because these themes will emerge again and again over the next few weeks. But I want to give some headlines so that as we're looking through chapters four to nine, we can look out for these themes. But I think his kingdom manifesto has three elements to it. There's proclamation, there's working for justice, and there's compassion. And all of it is filled, sorry, fueled by the filling or the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so back to those verses 18 and 19, it says, because he's anointed me, first of all, proclamation to preach good news to the poor. He says, you will proclaim good news to the poor. That's the least, the weak, the marginalised, the sidelined, the overlooked. That's who the good news is for. And that's who you're going to proclaim it to. This proclamation is going to be summed up as the year of the Lord's favour. 
And so the first and last lines of his message are about proclaiming. Proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour. And the year of the Lord's favour, another biblical term for that, is the year of jubilee. The year of jubilee, when debts are cancelled, slaves are freed, land is returned. That is good news. That is the gospel. That is the year of the Lord's favour. This jubilee time is going to come. And so the first thing in Jesus' kingdom manifesto is that it is all about proclamation. Proclamation of good news, proclamation of the year of the favour of the Lord, the jubilee time. And the second thing is advocating justice. You see, the second and fourth lines of this are that he is going to be bringing freedom to captives and the oppressed. This manifesto isn't just words that are proclaimed. There are things to be done as well. There is action that will happen. And I really like the, the way that, he, that these two lines sit together. As a pair. So it says in the one, he has sent me to proclaim release or freedom to the captives. Some of us will be sent to do justice, to work for justice. The example is Elijah. He was sent to the widow to bring justice, to provide for her and her son. But the other line is, Um, that we're set to set free those who are oppressed or to proclaim freedom for those who are oppressed. Another way of thinking about it is to send into freedom those who are oppressed. So some of us will be sent, but others of us will have people sent to us. Like Elisha, Naaman came to him. He didn't have to go hunting. Naaman came to him and he was then sent back away into freedom. Go and do this and you will be free. And this is really important for mission because we have to be ready for people to be sent to us so that we can speak freedom and send them away into freedom. And other times we will need to go out and speak freedom, bring freedom to people. And both of them are valid and both of them are expressions of his grace. And Jesus does that. He advocates justice for the captives and justice for the oppressed. And the third thing in this mini sermon that Jesus preaches is compassion. Right in the heart of it, it says, he sent me for recovery of sight to the blind. That's not a justice issue in the terms of there's some injustice there. Actually, sight for the blind is about the compassion and mercy and love of Father God for those who are suffering. And everything we do must be fueled by love, motivated by the compassion of the Father's heart, bringing sight to the blind, healing to the sick. It's different from advocating for justice, but it is a demonstration of the love and mercy of God. So those three things will occur again and again and again. Proclamation, the bringing of justice, and working for compassion, out of compassion and love. But 
this comes with a warning. Because just as it was for Jesus, where they tried to kill him straight away afterwards, people might not like what we're doing. They may well criticise. Prejudices will no doubt come to the fore. Why are you working with asylum seekers? They don't even belong here. Why are you looking out for ex-convicts? They've done something wrong, they don't deserve any more. Why are you caring for poor families? They just are not very trustworthy with their money. They brought it on themselves. Why are you trying to deal with issues of racial injustice? Got to look after our own. This is what Jesus says to that. Israel had many widows in the time of Elijah. Israel had many lepers in the time of Elisha. And yet, the ones who got the grace of God weren't of Israel. You see, this kingdom that Jesus is launching here is not a normal kingdom. It's not an ethnic kingdom. It's a grace kingdom. It's one for misfits and dropouts. It's one for failures and the weak. It's an upside-down kingdom where the have-nots have plenty and the down-and-outs are promoted. The message of the kingdom isn't for the narrow-minded and the blinkered. It's not for the privileged in the hometown. It's for the poor. It's for the captives. It's for the blind. It's for the oppressed. It's for the marginalised. It's for the outsiders. It's for the Gentiles. It's for the world. That's who we're sent for. Because that's who Jesus came for. See, the time of Elijah and Elisha was a time of unexpected grace. It's not what you would expect, but it's what happened. And Jesus here in this sermon is saying, the year of the Lord's favour is going to be a time of unexpected grace. And for us, we're still living in the year of the Lord's favour. That's why we're called Jubilee, year of the Lord's favour. We're living in a time of unexpected grace. And so we should look like this. This is what we should carry. We should be the proclaimers of good news, the proclaimers of the year of favour. We should be advocating justice for all. Before Christmas, we had the call from Becky to restore the city, the call from me to remember the poor. I know it was last year, but it's still relevant. And this series is going to help us think about what that might look like. The call hasn't gone away, but we need to work out what it means, what it looks like. And at the heart of it, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit and motivated by the compassion of the Father, expecting to find grace in unexpected places. As we start this series, I want to encourage you to draw near to Jesus afresh. You know, if you're anything like me and my life group this week, We've been soaking in those 10 amazing words that Rob brought us last week. Didn't they do us good? Words of strengthening, words of hope. Or can I challenge you that you may be benefiting from them this week and you will continue to benefit from them. But actually, those words are not just for you. They're words that we carry because we proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so words of hope 
and peace and truth. They're gospel words. Words of control, remember, being able to say no, imagining and wonder. That's about justice and freedom. The celebrate and laugh, that's about the year of the favour of the Lord. These words aren't just for us. They're words we carry with us. And so can I just ask you as to respond in your hearts and say that you are open to being part of this manifesto, this launch of King Jesus' kingdom. And I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for the words of grace which you pour out on us. And as we've listened to your manifesto and seen the reaction of hard-hearted people, we say, would you soften our hearts? May we be people who proclaim the good news to the poor, who carry the year of the Lord's favour wherever we go, who work for justice and who are filled with your love and your compassion. Amen.